How's everybody doing? Good, good. Um, hey, two things before I get started. Um, one thing is what Corey talked about with that parking situation. It's actually a little light in here today for a nine o'clock. It's usually a little bit more full than this, but uh, we're trying to prepare. I, I've learned recently that construction language is a different language than normal language. Um, the timetables don't line up, but uh, I'm not sure when this, <laughs> someone amen that. Uh, I'm not sure when this parking lot's going to get done. It's gonna, they're moving pretty rapidly since they've gotten started, but it's going to take um, probably at least another month or so. So we need to free up. If, if you came this morning, you probably realized uh, there's not as much parking and that the 11 o'clock is even bigger than this service. So we need to free up some room for that. And our Saturday services are exactly the same as the Sunday services, um, except sometimes there's like crazy parties at May Day. So you may see someone in like a, a toga or something walk by, but that's kind of fun too. So uh, um, it's a different dynamic of church, but, uh, but that's fun. So um, anyways, so you should come check those out. And the other reason why it's important to, to consider, we would love for you to prayerfully consider come to a Saturday night, at least for a couple of months until we get into the other side. Uh, we won't get into the other side probably till about uh, late February, early March, something like that. So it's going to take a couple more months. And um, we usually have a huge growth spurt in January because everyone's New Year's resolution is to, to not go to hell or something. So, um, so we have this... Uh, so we have this huge growth spurt in January. My mom's watching right now online, and I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that one. But uh, uh, last year, I think we, we had like a growth spurt of like 300 people in the month of January. And, and if 300 people came this January on the Sunday services, I don't know where the heck we're going to put them. So um, uh, consider moving to Saturday nights if you would, just at least just for a couple of months. The other thing is, and I hate talking about it, but uh, we have this book for sale. It was, before you clap, let me clarify, it was number one on Amazon's religious education studies something something. Okay, well, no, wait, it's a category of like seven books, right? So um, it, was, uh, it was number one. It's like being the best ping pong player in your neighborhood or something, you know? It's like, so uh, if you want to if you want to pick up a copy, we may hold our title as best religious studies education book written by a church called The Experience or whatever that category is on Amazon. So anyways, okay, serious business. Okay, we are in the book of Daniel. Now, if you haven't been with us, we covered chapter six last week, and chapter six is arguably the, the, the most famous story in the book of Daniel, one of the most famous stories in the entire Old Testament about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. He was an aging prophet. He was uh, in his mid-80s at about this time. He was now under a guy named King Darius, who was the leader of the Persian Empire because the Persians had conquered the Babylonians. We're going to go over a lot of this today, so if you haven't been here, it's okay. And so what we're going to do is we're going to move in. If you want to cut Daniel into two parts, chapters 1 through 6 is kind of one section. And then chapters 7 through 12 are very different. And when we get into chapter 7 through 12, we're going to get into the first half of chapter 7 today. This is where we get into deep, deep prophecy. Stuff about the end times, the Antichrist, the last empire that's ever going to reign before Jesus comes back. Um, this is a, a very unfair pressure put on me, but theologians believe Daniel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters of the Old Testament and one of the most important chapters of the entire Bible, okay? Because it's the first time we see a glimpse of the second coming of Jesus Christ is in uh, the book of Daniel chapter 7, okay? But we're going to go over that today. So we talked about last week this. We talked about the difference between faith and what I like to call saving faith. The belief in God versus the belief in Him that it actually changes your thoughts, your actions, that it saves you, okay? And so today we're going to talk about this, and I'm going to ask for your forgiveness on the front end. 
Um, there's a lot of stuff that comes up today about empires and governments, and if you come to this church, you know that I'm not like a, a, a huge fan of earthly governments and earthly empires. So we're going to get into this, and I'm going to do my best to not let my personal feelings on government come out, and, uh, but it's going to get into that, okay? And it's uncomfortable, but I think it's something we need to hear. So we're going to talk about today that God calls us to depend on His perfection, His standards, and not the perfection of mankind or the individual, okay? So God calls us to depend on Him, not on us, not on our abilities. If we depend on us, we're going to fail every single time, okay? That's going to lead me into some political discussion today. So let me pray. Uh, we live in heavy times, don't we? I don't know if anyone feels that. Uh, for like the last two weeks, I've just, just I'm not trying to sound uh, more important than what I am, but, but I just, I, I feel it. Um, I feel what's going on in the other parts of the world. I feel what's going on in our city. I, I feel what's going on with a lot of you, and, and you probably feel it too, and maybe you haven't been able to put your finger on it, but I feel like the world is in such disarray, but I also feel like the Holy Spirit of God is, is, just, is just right on the cusp of doing something amazing. And so... Um, Let's just pray today, and let's, let's pray that the Holy Spirit just speaks to us, and let's just approach God's Word with, with uh, an objective view and an open heart and transparency. And if you're in here and you are not a believer in Jesus, you probably couldn't hear a better message. Um, we're going to learn today that there's no hope except through Christ, okay? So, Lord Jesus, God, we love you. God, give me grace. I need grace today. I need, uh, I need your, your, your Spirit to speak through me. I need wisdom I need guidance. God, open up our hearts and our minds, Lord, and help us to receive something good from your word today, God. Your word is good. It's just we need to open up our ears and hear it, God. Lord, we pray for every church in our city. Father, I am so over territories and boundaries. God, I just pray, Lord, that you bless every church in our city. Help them to grow and flourish and help your kingdom to advance through them, God, through the men and women that lead those churches. God, bless them and give them wisdom, God. Lord, we pray for all the homeless that are being fed right now at the park, God, and especially the ones that have to live out in these elements and in this weather, Lord Jesus. I pray, God, grace and protection over them, Father, and that we can help somehow uh, to move them out of that situation. God, we thank you, Lord. Bless the kids in Eon and Echo. Bless our security team. Bless all of our volunteers, Lord, and bless everyone in this congregation this morning. We thank you. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you should have received a handout when you walked in. Uh, chapter 7 of Daniel, we're in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Ezekiel. We're going to get into, guys, some, some, some dense stuff today. So we're only going to do half the chapter, okay? I think you guys are going to like it, though. You may see me get angry at some point. So here we go. Man, there's nothing cooler than hearing, like, the rustling of Bibles opening. So anyways, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the dream, and here is the summary of his account. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I was watching, and suddenly the four winds of heaven stirred up the great sea. Four huge beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, but had eagle's wings, and I continued watching until its wings were torn off. It was lifted up from the ground, and it was set on its feet like a man and given a human mind. Suddenly, another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. 
It was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and gorge yourself on flesh. While I was watching, another beast appeared. It was like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and it had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. While I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful and incredibly strong. With large iron teeth, it devoured and crushed and trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from the other beasts before it, and it had ten horns. Okay, so chapter 7 is actually a flashback. If you're reading the book of Daniel, in chapter 6, it ends with him kind of going into retirement again. He's in his 80s, probably his late 80s by about that time. And so we're going to flash back to when he was probably in about his late 70s. And he was under the king Belshazzar, who was the last king of the Babylonian empire before Darius of the, of the, of the Persians and the Medes came over and took it over, okay? So this is the first recorded vision of Daniel. And like I said earlier, called one of the greatest prophecies and one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible because of the depth and because it talks about the future coming of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So it's a big deal. So when you get into this kind of writing, okay, this kind of writing confuses a lot of people. And it actually, it shouldn't be that confusing, A, because Daniel gives the interpretation and a lot of the metaphors are not hard to connect. But we get a blend in apocalyptic or prophetic writing like Daniel, and we're going to go back and forth to Revelation a lot today. So we get a lot in that of metaphorical symbols that have very literal meanings. So there's a lot of metaphors that are figurative, but the interpretation is very literal. And this kicks off when it talks about the four winds of heaven that stir up a great sea. The winds are not a literal wind, but all throughout the Bible, about 120 times, the Bible talks about wind, and about half those times, wind is in reference to the power and sovereignty of God. The fact that it mentions four winds means the north, south, east, and west, that it is all four corners. Basically, the entire world is going to feel the effects of the things that are going to happen in this chapter, okay? So, the winds are figurative. The sea is figurative and literal. There's a lot of those in prophetic writing too where it kind of has a dual meaning. The great sea it's talking about is literally talking around the area of the Mediterranean Sea, that a lot of this stuff is going to happen around the Mediterranean Sea, the literal sea. The other part it's talking about is the sea of humanity. If you go into Revelation 13, right? If you go into Revelation 13, it says that the Antichrist, that's the last great evil leader before Christ comes back, the Antichrist will come out of the sea. doesn't mean that he walks out of the ocean. It means that he comes out of a sea of people, a sea of humanity. So that's where the Antichrist will come from. And so the great sea being stirred up gives us the illusion, the people being stirred up gives us the illusion of confusion, of chaos, of disorder, of tribulation, of persecution. It gives us that illusion. And what's interesting in Revelation 21.1, it says that this kind of sea will not exist in the next life, which means there will be no confusion, no chaos, no disorder, no pain, no tribulation. Those things will not exist according to Revelation 21.1 in the next life, in the next existence, okay? So the four winds also represent God's judgment. It represents his power, his sovereignty, and his judgment. And it's going to affect that we're going to see four major empires. And then the last one is going to bleed into the last empire, okay? 
It's going to talk about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and how these empires will exert their power throughout the centuries until Jesus Christ comes back and brings final judgment, not just to the empire, but to the ideology of that empire. That's important. So like I said earlier, wind is mentioned a lot, and we see that mentioning here. So apocalyptic writing has a lot of metaphors, and one of the metaphors that it contains a lot of is animal metaphors. And what happens is the animal that it uses, God doesn't just use random, like, you know, the chicken of the apocalypse or something like that. He doesn't just use random animals. He picks animals that coincide with either a person or the place that they represent. And so in this part, when we read about these animals, they're going to coincide with the empires that they represent. In verse 3 that we just read, it said that these beasts come out of the sea. In verse 17 that we'll talk about next week, it says that the beasts come out of the earth. Now, this isn't a contradiction. Again, if you go back to Revelation chapter 13, it says that the Antichrist will come out of the sea, out of people, and then it says that his prophet or his helper, there's going to be two of them, his prophet is going to come out of the land, out of the earth. And what that represents is one is going to be a political leader. Hey, try to wrap your brain around this. There will be a corrupt politician. Wrap your brain around this too. There will be a corrupt religious leader and they will get together. And here's where you guys are going to think I'm a nutcase, right? And Corey's an anarchist. It will be a combination of politics and religion that will bring the world down. It will be a combination of corrupt politics and corrupt religion that will bring the world down. And the Antichrist will lead both of those things through a beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. If you don't like that, uh, I'm sorry, it's not me. It's the Bible. And so the first beast is this. It's the lion with eagle's wings. Now, this one is easy to put together. It's easy to put together because we've been studying the book of Daniel for the last couple of months. So this represents the Babylonian empire. When it says its wings have been clipped or torn off, its speed had been eliminated, and it had been set on its feet like a man and given the mind of a man, it says. This is obviously Nebuchadnezzar. It's not just talking about the Babylonian empire. And though Nebuchadnezzar had become a good man, right? He had his wings clipped. You guys know that terminology, that analogy. He had his wings clipped. He had been humbled and then set back on his feet like a man. God had done that to him. He had changed. But the Babylonian empire was still evil. It was still pagan. It was still bad. And so it was going to have judgment because the empire as a, as a whole had not changed. The second beast that comes up is the bear. Now, the bear symbolizes the Medo-Persian empire. And the reason, woohoo, there's a wasp. Good grief. You see those cat-like reflexes? This symbolizes the Medo-Persian. Did you get it? Did you, get, did you kill it? Well, all right. At least, at least maybe it's wobbly, right? If you guys see that again, you need to like point or something, okay? So the bear is the second one. This symbolizes the Medo-Persian empire. This beast is bulky, showing that they had size and power. And so when you talk about the bear that is the Persian empire, their armies had roughly two and a half million people per army. This was a large force. So the bear makes sense. It also says that it was raised up on one side. So you get the imagery of a bear, almost like he's about to strike something. This shows dominance. This shows aggression. Something odd is it said that the bear walked around and had three ribs in its teeth, like stuck in its teeth, like it just devoured an animal. 
The three ribs represent the three major geographical areas that the Persian army had already conquered, Asia Minor, Babylon, and Egypt. So all these things are tied into history. So the bear is the second beast, okay? The third beast is like a leopard, it says. And this one's a little bit more interesting. It had four wings, so it moved quickly. That's what the wings represent. And it had four heads. That's a little bit different. So quick history lesson. There was the Assyrians who were taken over by the Babylonians. Then there was the Babylonians who were taken over by Persia. And then like a leopard, you history buffs, the Greeks came in. They didn't have the numbers. They didn't have the brute strength. But they came in and with just four generals, with 35,000 soldiers apiece, they came in and they took Persia by storm by a man named Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great came in, and if you go back and look at history of all the empires that have ever existed since the world has been around, no one had done more conquest in the shortest amount of time is Alexander the Great. So he's represented by a leopard, someone that moves very, very swiftly, very, very quickly. So the fourth beast, it gets even more interesting. The fourth beast, it says, is the most terrifying. And this beast represents the Roman Empire. Daniel says it was incredibly strong and it was dreadful. And whatever was in front of it, it trampled it with its feet. It was also unique because this beast had 10 horns on its head. Again, this is all symbolic, but it all means literal things. There were 10 horns on this beast's heads, on this head. So if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue, and at the bottom there were 10 toes of this statue that represented 10 governments that would eventually bind together and fight against not just the rest of the world, but fight against God Almighty. That's what these 10 horns represent, these 10 governments that will join in opposition to God, okay? So if you're thinking of history, though, you're thinking, well, wait a second, the Roman Empire, that thing ended like 1,500 years ago. What's the worry? What's the concern? Why are we still talking about that? Well, the thing is this, though the Roman Empire ended, the ideology of the Roman Empire, an empire that lasted seven centuries, the ideology is still alive and well in our culture. In fact, most political systems like our republic, theoretically, our republic that we live in, the economics, even most languages in the world are derived from Rome, the Romance languages. That's where that word comes from, Romance. And so even these languages come from the Roman Empire. So the ideology of Rome is still alive and well in the world today. And that is the last form of ideology that will exist until Christ comes back. And we'll get into that, okay? All right? Everyone's still with me? It's dense, huh? Here we go. Now, what I'm going to do, I, I never do this. I'm going to read verse 8, I'm going to skip 9 and 10, and then I'm going to go to 11 and 12. Okay, so if you're reading with me, skip over 9 and 10. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted. There were eyes in the horn like a man's, and it had a mouth that spoke arrogantly. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to a burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their authority to rule was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. So again, if you're seeing all this in a dream, 
This fourth beast is terrifying. There are ten horns on its head. There is a little horn of the ten that pops up, dominates three of the horns, so it brings it down to seven. It's another lesson for another time. And so you see this one horn is going to lead these other horns, okay? So going back to Rome, there he is again. Going back to Rome, there's never been anything like the Roman Empire since the Roman Empire fell. And when the Roman Empire fell, it opened up the door for more leaders globally, but weaker leader, leaders. There has never been a cohesiveness in the world. I'm not saying that cohesiveness was good, but there's never been a cohesiveness. There's never been solidarity in the world since the Roman Empire, okay? So if you look, in case you haven't noticed, our world is exceptionally divided today. It is not on the same page. It is not cohesive. And what this is going to do is it's going to set up for the ultimate evil leader to bring cohesiveness to the world. This individual that is going to bring the world together will be the one to lead it. And the only way that that individual is going to have the power to do that is through Satan. Of course, ultimately, God's going to allow all this, but it's only by the power of darkness that it's going to be able to come into power. Now, this individual is called Antichrist. In Daniel, we call him the little horn. In the book of Revelation, he is referred to as the Antichrist. Now, this Antichrist is the embodiment of all rebellion that's ever been given to God. In Revelation 13 too, if you go back and read Revelation chapter 13, it says that the Antichrist will embody all of these beasts. It embodies the leopard, the bear, the lion, and then this fourth beast. It is a culmination of all these things. It has all those characteristics, and it will be given power by what Revelation calls the dragon, which is not a stretch. That's Satan. And so this individual, this man, will also be called the man of lawlessness, mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 8. The reason why he's called the man of lawlessness is this individual will not care about the laws of God, and he will not care about the laws of mankind. He will make his own laws. He will be a supreme ruler over the entire earth, okay? So it says he had eyes like a man, and he spoke arrogantly. So we know this isn't talking to a kingdom. This is talking about an individual. This is talking about a person. And so we, we're going to go into a little bit of the details of this person. So skip over to verse 11 and 12, okay? What Daniel is doing in verse 11 and 12 is he is setting up the ultimate conflict. He is setting up the conflict of the ages, the ultimate battle between good and evil. And if you want to jump over to Revelation sometimes and, and, and read it, it's extremely anticlimactic. When Jesus comes back and faces evil for the last time, like it's not like this huge epic war like in Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings. It's nothing like that. You know, there's no like, you know, giraffes and leopards jumping in, none of that. Jesus just comes back, speaks a word, and evil is gone right? Pretty anticlimactic. So Daniel's setting up this conflict. And as he's setting up this conflict, as the ancient of days, that's God, is taking his seat in heaven, there is this boastful little horn that is talking about his authority. And then the beast or the little horn was killed by God and thrown into a fire. So there's two things going on. And I'll go back and read the other part. On earth, there's this arrogant leader talking about how he is God. He's the leader, he's the one in charge, he's setting all the rules, an arrogant political figure, okay? And in heaven, there is God sitting on the throne during this time. So the little horn was part of a group of 10 other horns, these other governments. And so when God comes down and casts this antichrist into, into hell, when he throws him into the pit, 
that means that will be the end of all evil empires. They will all go with him, okay? What's interesting is it says this, that after God kills this Antichrist and casts his soul into hell, it says that the other beasts will have a certain amount of time to live. Now, people argue about that all the time. Many believe, this is what it is, is that those empires, not only will they have a certain amount of time that they will, they will thrive on earth, but it means that their ideology or their systems, their history, their culture will live on in some way until Jesus comes back. What that means is the Egyptian empire ended a long time ago, right? But there's still many things in, from Egyptian culture that permeate even North American culture right now. There's symbols. There's uh, the whole satanic movement of the early 1900s. They worshipped Horus, which was a god of the Egyptians. There was a lot of things that bled into our culture, though that empire died a long time ago. Needless to say, the Greeks and the Romans, their culture still permeates almost everything we do. So those cultures live on even though those empires have ended, okay? So that's probably what that's talking about. It says this, thinking about those cultures that were anti-God living on until he comes back. John said this, every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and John says, but his spirit is here now. It's in the world right now. Now, what does that mean? I don't know if the literal Antichrist is alive yet or not. I don't know. But I know that John said the spirit that he will embody is alive and well in the world. Now, John wrote this about 1950 years ago. And when we look at our culture now, and I'm not trying to like be all hellfire and brimstone on you right now, but when you and I gravitate, you and I, when we gravitate towards ruthless conquest, when we gravitate towards materialism, idol worship, lust, greed, sexual perversion, gluttony, drunkenness, and violence, these are all things that nations, empires that were anti-Christ, these are the things that they did. And when we personally gravitate towards these things, we are embodying the spirit of Antichrist. When we gravitate, when we think about our sin as not just slipping up and looking at porn, it's not just slipping up and looking at porn. It is a rebellion towards God. When we start thinking of our sin, like our sin is a rebellion, it creates a chasm between God and I. It gives us a whole different reason to live a repentant, righteous life. If we love God, we know that that sin pushes us away from Him, and we don't want to be away from Him. It's not just slipping up and feeling guilty. It's saying, oh my gosh, I am thinking contradictory to my creator, to my father, to my Lord, to my savior, to my friend. And it changes the way we think about sin. So as the beast is being arrogant on earth, right? Please keep this in mind. As the beast is being arrogant on earth, as a corrupt political figure is trying to solve the problems of the world and saying that they're the one that's going to save humanity, this is what's going on in heaven. As I kept watching... Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair on his head like whitest wool. His throne was a flaming fire, and its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened 
and the books were opened. So if we go back to verse 9 and 10, as the little horn was boasting and seemingly powerful on earth, the ancient of days, God was on the throne. Okay, so last week, no, it was this week. This week, I'm looking at, man, here we go, guys. Just, this, this is why I asked for forgiveness early on. Earlier this week, I was looking at my health insurance. And so I don't make a whole lot of money. Uh, we get independent health insurance. Right now, we pay $608 a month for health insurance. Yeah, in January, it goes up to 766 And so I'm looking at this, right? Living the way we do, modestly, debt-free, drive old cars, like don't have cable television, do everything we can to be frugal, right? I'm just, I'm just going to complain here for a second. Just pardon me. <laughs> and I look at how little we have. We're blessed. We have a nice home. We, you know, like my kids are healthy. I, I'm grateful. But I look at these corrupt politicians I look at the corrupt legislation. I look at the things, how they press down and how people get rich off the backs of good people like you and I, right? I see this and it makes me angry. So I want to watch, you know, Rage Against the Machine videos or, you know, get up and like punch something. But I get mad and I'm doing our budget and it makes me angry and I'm sitting here and all the stuff has happened throughout the world and we see what's going on in France and San Bernardino and we look at the dysfunction and we look at all the corrupt governments and we look at all the brokenness in the world and at the same time, I was going over that and I'm like, good grief, my raise that I thought I was gonna get is gonna go all to the government next year and you get super mad and you get super down and you look at the corruption and you think, my God, my kids are gonna have to grow up in this corrupt world and you see it all and then you see how much people are focused on these politicians who, quite frankly, guys, aren't gonna do anything for you and so we're so worried about it. And look, the whole time I'm, I'm thinking about the two clowns I'm going to have to choose for my next president, and I'm looking at all this stuff, right? And I go back and read chapter 7. And the whole time, when it looks like these corrupt political leaders are going to be our saviors, when people are focused on these arrogant people who sit on these man-made thrones, as that's going on, God in heaven sits on the only true throne. Listen, and so what we've made the mistake of doing is we keep investing on empires that we know are going to fall. We keep investing, Christians, I'm not talking about liberals, I'm not talking about ultra conservatives, I'm talking about Christianity. We keep thinking that an earthly government is gonna save us. And the Bible strictly says, plainly says in black and white, they will all crumble and one throne will be left. So I ask you and I, where is our focus? Do we understand that there is one empire that will never be corrupt? There is one empire that will never fall. There is one empire that will never let us down. It is the kingdom of God. Do we know that? Do you know that? I'm so afraid that so many of you are going to be disappointed when we go into the next election season. Quite frankly, this guy's going to be disappointed however the chips fall. But I cannot rest in the sovereignty of the world. I must rest in the sovereignty of the Almighty God. The Ancient of Days, right? And I know some of you guys don't like that because you want a political leader to save you. You want that. Guys, I'm not an anarchist. I'm not anti-establishment. You know, I'm not... 
My wife and I were talking the other day, and she goes, Corey, you got to be careful because no one at your church is going to go vote. <laughs> and, and, and that's not what I'm about. That's not what I'm about, I promise you. But listen, we've got to avert our eyes from looking into the help from other people, and we've got to start looking up to God. The churches have got to start praying. We've got to start. Let me, let me, let me get through this. So we get our best glimpse of God's majesty in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You should go back and read that for homework tonight. We not only see God's majesty in Daniel chapter 7 and in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we see the complexity of God. We're going to see God sitting on the throne, Jesus come up. They're both simultaneously God, but they're separate. And you see the complexity of the Holy Trinity. We get to see those things in chapter 7 and in Revelation 4 and 5. The white hair and the clothes symbolize his purity, the respect, the honor of God. The flaming river coming out portrays righteousness and judgment and power. And there's millions of people that stand before him. And it says this, as the angels stood in support on these thrones, the angels stood in support. It says the books of our lives are written out. It says the court was convened and the books were opened. These are the books about us. These are the books that tell the story of what you and I have done. And this is in preparation for humanity's judgment, that God is going to look at our books and he is going to judge our eternity. And what this sets up is this sets up the thousand-year reign, all of this. There will be this millennium after Jesus comes back. Again, I don't have all the answers for this, but I got a snapshot. There will be a millennium after the coming of Christ mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 20 in which you and I will actually be seated on thrones of authority as well. We will reign with Christ for a thousand years in a harmonious, perfect earth. And then there will be this rebellion, a second rebellion after the thousand years where Satan will be loosed from the pit, he will come back and try to do another rebellion. That will be the final punishment, and that will be where he is thrown into the lake of fire for, for eternity, Satan, along with the prophet and the antichrist, the, the, the false prophet, it says in Revelation chapter 20, and then we will go to our eternity forever. Now look, when it comes to prophetic books, we don't need to know all the exact details. We don't need to know all the ins and outs of it. That's not the point of the prophetic books. The point of the prophetic books is that we prepare for the certainty of Jesus Christ's second return. So though we don't know all the details, we do know that we are to live righteously. And whatever comes, we'll be ready. When the Holy Spirit is truly inside of us, they will be able to take away everything, including our lives, and we will still find contentment in him. That's where we need to be preparing ourselves. And my great fear for the North American church right now is you and I have been so coddled and we've been so comforted. And quite frankly, the same entitlement that we hate in the world is the same entitlement that has crept into the church. And I'm afraid that we're not going to be ready for what's coming down the pike. I'm afraid. We talk about France. We've already forgotten that, right? 120 dead. We've already we, we kind of moved past it. 14 in San Bernardino. That's just the tip of the iceberg of the atrocious things that are going to happen, especially to the church. Do you want to know something really disconcerting? In the second part of chapter 7, it says that the beast attacks the church and that he overtakes it. Do you know that in the world's eyes, we're going to lose? But our victory is not found in this earth. It is not found in this. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It is the next life that we invest into. And that's what we need to know about these books. Let's, let's end on a positive note. 
I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and he was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the scene changes. In addition to the Ancient of Days, which is God, right? Daniel now sees someone like a man. It's not a man. We know because of the New Testament this isn't a man. The reference son of man was something Jesus used to describe himself. And he's going to be coming in the clouds. And this takes us back to uh, like Exodus 16.10, when Moses would go up on Mount Sinai and he'd be surrounded by a dense cloud and he would talk to God. You should go back and read that. That's fun. He would go up there and Moses is like, I can't stand these Jews. God, kill them. And God's like, oh, chill out, Moses. And then other times Moses would go up there and God's like, I want to kill these Jews. And Moses is like, no, don't do that. So they had this interesting relationship. Moses and God, and it's fun to read about. We also see that God is, or Christ is going to come back on the clouds. We see this in Matthew 24, 30. And then, of course, Jesus is the Son of Man. Clouds are all throughout the Scripture, by the way. Jesus ascended into heaven in Matthew and in Acts in, uh, in a cloud. It says that he will return in the clouds. Uh, all throughout the Bible, whenever clouds are around certain individuals, revelation typically kind of is with that, that there's this cloud and then a revelation given by God. And so Jesus will come back, he will destroy evil for a thousand years, and he will set up this thousand-year reign. And that's when Christ will have unadulterated rule over the entire earth for a millennium. And that millennium is going to set up the eternal kingdom. Now, the thousand-year reign sets up what will be heaven, what will be where we live for eternity. That's found in Revelation 29 through 5. So after the thousand years, Satan will rebel again, he will lose again, and he will be eternally thrown into the lake of fire along with the Antichrist who's already there and the false prophets who are already there. And after that, we will be eternally judged. One of my favorite images in the book of Revelation is it says, after this thousand-year reign, Jesus casts Satan into the lake of fire permanently, and then it says the old heavens and the old earth are gone. So if you talk to any astrophysicists, because I know you guys talk to astrophysicists all the time, right? If you ever talk to an astrophysicist, they believe that the universe is actually going to reach a point to where it will collapse. And so it's funny, if you go back to the Big Bang Theory, which is just a massive expansion of light, God said, let there be light, there it is. Anyways, so there's this. And then what scientists, astrophysicists think is that the universe will eventually do this and then reform. So if you go into Revelation, it says that essentially, that God will wipe away the old heavens and the old earth and he will expand and make a new one. And so there will be this new earth in a lot of people, there's a misconception. We don't go up to heaven. The holy city actually comes down. Go back and read Revelation. It actually comes down and rests on a new earth. And it says that the gates of the new city will be open. Now, this is just Corey's liberal interpretation. I believe we will live in this holy city, heaven, which it gives the dimensions of and everything else. The gates will be open and you and I will get to explore a new earth. How cool is that, right? Anyways. So Daniel, in the, in the scripture that we've read today, gives us the scope of essentially all human empires. From verse 1 through verse 14, just half of the chapter, he gets us uh, the, the, human, the history of human empires, and then he fast-forwards into where this last empire will arise from the ashes of the Roman Empire, give birth to the Antichrist, and finally Christ will come back and set up his reign 
on earth. And the focus of what we've done today is not the Antichrist. The focus is not in the opposition. The focus is in the futility of opposing God. The focus is God. And the focus is that anyone who comes against him will fall. That's what empires have done over and over and over. And what we need to know is this is the story that God has already written. And we are invited to be a part of the winning team. We're invited to be a part of that story. So look, as we get into more apocalyptic writing, it's important to remember, symbolism is to be taken figuratively. It's not literal. But the interpretation is literal. The symbols taken figuratively, but the interpretation is literal. In other words, we will not know the exact details or times of the prophecies of Daniel or Revelation. We know that because Jesus himself, when he was asked, when are you going to come back? He said, I'm not sure yet. So I'm only 36. And in my 36 short years, I think God has already been set to come back four times that I can remember. Those of you who are old enough, in 1988, there was a book written, 88 Reasons Why God Will Come Back in 1988. That probably sold more copies than our book. Um, <laughs> in the year 2000, he was supposed to come back. You guys remember that, Y2K? Everyone had 90,000 gallons of water in their garage, right? Remember that? <laughs> so it was supposed to end in 2000. It was supposed to end in 2012, right? Man, the Mayans ripped people's hearts out of their chest and ate them. They, they got it figured out. We should follow their lead. Right? So everything, it was all going to end in 2012. So here we are in 2015, about to go into 2016. Man is always going to look foolish when they try to outsmart God. Always. So we don't know the exact times. We don't know the exact details. We don't know that. But we do know this. Christ will come back. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he will come and that he will judge mankind. And look, in the meantime, if we know he's going to come back, in the meantime, we don't know how much time that is, but in the meantime, we have God's grace. In the meantime, we have forgiveness. We have the opportunity to where we rebel against God that we can just go back to him and say, God, I am sorry. And he says, no damage done. I forgive you. We're good. I love what that song said. No, no amount of untruth can separate us. No, we're good. We're good. So we have God's grace. We also have the comfort and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, church, you need to tap into. I don't understand. We're only going to see suicides increase. We're only going to see people drown in depression and anxiety more and more and more. We're only going to see violence acted out. We're only going uh, to see more divorce and more breakdown of the nuclear family if we do not go back and find peace and comfort and guidance in the Holy Spirit. The reason why Jesus Christ died on a cross and sent his Holy Spirit out is he knew that we had to have that inside of us to make it through the turbulent waters that this world is stirring up. We have to have the peace and the comfort and the guidance and the gift of wisdom. If there's one gift that you guys need to pray for, God give me the gift of wisdom, the gift of discernment to navigate these waters that the world is stirring up right now. Not only do we have God's grace, not only do we have His Holy Spirit, we have the instruction of the Word. If you're concerned about how to raise your kids, the book has the answer. 
If you're concerned about how to be a good husband or wife, this book has the answer. If you're worried about economics and how to handle your finances, this book has the answer. If you're worried about about how to handle social issues and hot button topics and how to talk to your friends about Jesus Christ, all these things are, are, are in this book. It is up to us to pick it up. We have grace, we have the spirit, and we have black and white clear instruction on how to live a life that God finds pleasing. And since we have these things, we are called to live to the standard of God. Here's the thing about the standard of God, though. The standard of God is not found in me. It is not found in a politician. It is not found in a king. It is not found in a CEO. It is not found in the righteous things I can do in my abilities. The standard of God, what God wants me to do is not lean on me and not to lean on you, but to lean on him, to petition him. Church, we need to pray. Corey, what do we do about radical Islamists? Pray. Corey, what do we do about death and destruction and war and famine? Pray. What do we do about divorce and social unrest and racism? We pray. We petition Christ. We don't go to each other. We don't go to higher ups. First and foremost, we go to him. We petition our Lord and Savior. We call upon him for wisdom and guidance. We call upon him to put men and women in front of us that are capable leaders, that do have kingdom mindsets. I know that we follow certain men and women. Paul even said, follow me as I follow Christ. But ultimately, when the junk hits the fan, ultimately, when we're looking for answers and for solutions, it has to come through God. In church, I just want to tell you, man, I'm not a doom and gloom guy. Don't sit around and wait for it to get better because if this book is correct, which I believe it is, it's going to go down and down and down and down until Christ reinserts himself. So don't wait for culture or media to save you. Don't wait for a hip-hop artist or a politician or a business consultant I'm not saying all those people are bad, but they do not hold the keys to heaven and hell. They will not fix us. Only God can fix us. Church, do you pray? Do you pray? Do you pray? Man, do you pray for your kids? Do you pray for your wife? Do you pray for your husband? Do you pray for this church? Do you pray for the churches of Christ? Do you pray for your city? Do you pray for your president? Man, as angry as I get at that man, I pray for him. And I earnestly pray for him. I'll pray for whoever gets elected after him. I will pray. We have got to find our place on our knees. We've got to lay down on our faces. Guys, we've got, we've got to change the culture of church to where this is just a place you visit once a week. We've got to be in connection with Christ. We've got to petition him. We cannot do it without him, guys. We cannot do it without him. I found myself last week, I was driving. I got so mad after looking at all that healthcare stuff. I got so mad. I got in my car and I just, I drove around. I just drove around. I was driving around my neighborhood. I was driving around town, just driving around. And for the first time in my life, I prayed a prayer that I didn't, I didn't think I'd ever pray before. I literally, in my car, out loud, I said, God, come quickly. God, I'm ready. Come on, man. Come on. I don't want my kids to grow up in this. Come on. 
Come on, come quickly. And I'm okay in saying that because many of the, many of the disciples and prophets in the Bible said, Lord, come quickly. Come, 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 come. And do you know what I felt like God said to me? I didn't hear an audible voice, but I just in my gut. You know what I felt like he said to me? Corey, you may be ready, but there's a lot of people who aren't. For the sake of our families, our kids, our future, our salvation, guys, we need to pray. And we need to petition the Lord. And we need to thank him. And we need to worship him. And we need to ask him for guidance. And we have to, we have to let the Holy Spirit work through us, not just for us, but for my neighbors, for my children, for my marriage, for you. I've got to let God, I've got to let God channel through me got to. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I want to tell you to not be afraid of the Holy Spirit. I'm not telling you to be a crazy charismatic. I'm not telling you to run around and speak in tongues at the top of your lungs. I'm not telling you to do that. But I'm telling you not to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. You need to pray that God gives you wisdom through the Holy Spirit, knowledge, prophecy, discernment, healing, tongues, interpretation of tongues, whatever God chooses to give to you. But you need to pray that God works through you and that the Holy Spirit is evident through you. More than ever, church, more than ever, we need God to be present in our churches, present in our lives, We need to be listening to him. We need to be talking to him. We need to be getting comfort and solace through him more than ever. And so, Lord Jesus, God, I just want to pray. I want to ask you. Father, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit start to work through the people of this church. God, if there are people in this room, Father that don't know who you are, I pray, Lord, that they just be courageous enough to ask if you're real. And then if they will ask if you're real, God, I I trust that your Holy Spirit will touch their heart. God, for the people in this room who are struggling, the people in this room who are afraid, the people of this room, God, who are anxious over the future, nervous over the future, like me, God, I am. Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit give us comfort and guidance and strength. I pray, Lord, that you counsel us like your word said you would. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit flows so much through us that it comes out and it affects the people around us, Lord. We need you. We need you. God, Lord, let us trust. Let us completely trust. Let us put our hope in one empire. Yours. Yours. Because it will never fall. It has walls that will never be broken down. And it has a king that will never be knocked off his throne. Father, we love you, God. Give us strength, Lord. We need you so bad. We need you, Lord. Guys, there's communion on the right and left. You're welcome to help yourself. Please be, um, please be uh, aware of people who are taking communion. If you want to have conversations or leave, just be respectful. It represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And everyone's welcome to take it as long as you've asked God to forgive you of your sins. There's also people up here to pray for you. If you have any questions or anything you need prayer for, they're willing willing to pray for you. Thank you, guys.